Ancient Hope, it's so good to be with you this morning. And, uh, my whole family, we just want to thank you for the, the million ways that you've welcomed us into this, this city, into this community, um, into this church. Actually, just this past week, our oldest, Ezra, said that Sunday is his favorite day of the, of the week because he gets to, to see everyone and, and meet everyone. And he feels that welcome as well. So it's not just me and, and Kristen, it's, it's our kids as well. So we just want to say thank you. Thank you for that. And towards that end, let's, let's pray as we uh, prepare to look at God's word. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for your word that you've given to guide and to direct our church. I pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intent and purposes to Scripture. And we pray, Father, that your Spirit would apply this passage to our head, to our hands, and to our hearts. Amen. Is the, is the mic okay? Is it, is it okay? Still getting used to this. Um, well... As all of us know, it's no secret that the pandemic has brought with it a deep sense of loneliness. The way that we live in community has been disrupted, and certainly the church has not been immune from those effects. However, as hope does seem to be dawning, as the fight against the virus does continue, we as the church need to be thinking about a very important question. Namely, what does it mean to cultivate a flourishing community? Among other things, the pandemic has revealed just how important community is. And I think more than ever before, perhaps, people are very, very hungry for community. We've been getting by, we've, we've been surviving on the meager but not unsustaining rations of Zoom calls and, and the like. But all the while, we're, we're longing for feasts of deep fellowship. And toward that end, today we're going to start a series on James titled The Flourishing Community. And throughout this letter, Jesus, the brother of James, is going to show us what kind of community that God has called us to. And even more, James was likely the very first document of the New Testament that was written. So James is there at the very root formation of the church. And throughout this series, we're going to lay heavy focus upon three biblical realities. That of flourishing, that of wisdom, and that of the gospel. And these three important biblical realities, as we'll see, are woven deeply into the introductory paragraphs of James. And they'll go on to frame much of what we find in the rest of the letter. In particular, these three realities go on to form what we might call the grammar of the church community. They, they work together to either implicitly or explicitly, as the case may be, structure all that the church says and does. And as we'll see, God calls us to flourishing as we live wisely before him with others inside of creation. And an important part of this flourishing is trusting his good and gracious character. A gracious character that he has revealed to us, that he's made known to us, both as our creator 
and in the gospel of his redemption as our Redeemer. So let's look then at each of these biblical realities in turn as we walk through these introductory chapters of James. So look with me again at James 1, 2 through 4. James writes the following. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James, in his own contemporary context, he's writing to Jewish Christians who are spread throughout the Roman Empire. Jewish Christians who are undergoing both persecution and marginalization. And James is writing them to push them, to call them to to hope and to fortitude amidst these sufferings. He's telling them that God can and will use these sufferings, these trials in their life to bring them to, quote, be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And this is really important because what James is showing us here is the goal of the Christian life. If we think of life as a kind of pilgrimage, if we think of life as a kind of journey, if we think of life as something that's actually going somewhere, it's very important to know what that destination is. And that's exactly what James is showing us here. He's giving us the goal that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And in particular, I want to look at the word and the concept James uses there for perfect. The Greek word there is teleoi. And it might sound a bit familiar because this word comes from the same word family from which we get the word telos. And telos is actually a word in English that we've just taken directly from the Greek. And what words like teleoi and telos communicate is the end, the goal, the purpose of a thing. As one commentator writes about this word, he says, it is the consummating conclusion of a dynamic process, the goal of which manifests the realization of a thing's meaning and its intentions. So this notion of perfect here is to be fully matured, to become what God intends us to be. And therefore, it's it's not surprising that in the ancient world, to talk about perfection writers will often appeal to either organic or agricultural imagery. So one famous classical example would be the the acorn that's perfected into, that's matured into the, the oak tree, an image that goes back at least as far back as Aristotle. And interestingly, the Bible also uses this kind of imagery. We heard Chris read Psalm 1. And there, the blessed person is compared to a tree who grows into full maturation, who is able to realize all that God intends for the human. And that's very important because what that makes us do is think about perfection in wholly positive terms, which is very important in our context because often when we think about perfection, we can think of it as as a kind of negative concept. We can think of it as being primarily without fault. When we say someone is perfect, our mind might immediately go to all the things that they they don't do. To say they're perfect is they never do anything wrong. They've never even had a cavity. And to be sure, refraining from wrongdoing is very important for the kind of perfection that James is putting out there. But he is casting it in terms of fullness. 
to be lacking in nothing, to not be without the fullness of everything that God intends for the human life. It's a perfection of fullness of life, of the fruition, of the maturation of our full humanity. And again, this is very, very important in our modern contemporary context. We tend to think of ethics or morality primarily as as rule following, and even more specifically, primarily in terms of avoiding certain prohibitions. Just think about the way that we speak. It's much more common to hear a person or action called immoral than moral. And again, when we think about a moral person, the focus goes to all the things that they don't do. They don't cheat on their taxes. They don't cheat on their exams. However, this this is very different than the scriptural imagery of perfection and the classical Christian notion of perfection. Take, for example, the the words of one particular uh, Christian philosopher, Michael Crom, and he writes the following about this contrast, the the dissonance that we find between our rich tradition and, and the way that we're prone to think about it now. He says the following, quote, In our society, we often think of the moral life in terms of rule following, of doing one's duty without regard to one's own well-being. On this conception, ethics is not about our own happiness, but about obedience to a moral code, regardless of our own interests or desires. On, on, On our understanding, ethics forces us to choose, to choose between what we ought to do and what we want to do, end quote. Crom here refers to, to happiness, and, and that's a term that has a long lineage in the Christian tradition, but I think in our, our, our modern context, it can be a bit trivialized. trivialized. If we think of happiness, sometimes our minds are more likely to go to Hallmark rather than Hosea, to Disney rather than Daniel. So I think the question is, what term, what concept can we really grasp onto here? And I think what Crom is getting at can also be got at by our term flourishing. And what Crom is telling us is that there is a deep danger in detaching ethics and morality from a notion of flourishing. That actually, ethics just is the way to the good life. The ethical life is the good life. To speak of ethics is to speak of the way of flourishing. To speak of ethics is to speak of being guided in the fulfillment of our deepest desires and also our deepest designs. Look with me again at Psalm 1, 1 through 3. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law... He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Psalm 1 is telling that the blessed person is the person who delights in the law of the Lord. And again, we know that the summary of the law of the Lord is encapsulated in those two basic commandments to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. 
In hearing and in heeding these commands, we are on the path to a life of delight. We are embarking upon the human form of life that will fulfill our deepest desires and deepest designs. But at the same time, we want to be careful here not to detach flourishing from the commands of God. For the commands of God are the means by which we get to this flourishing. They're like the path that lead us to the end, the destination of flourishing. They are meant to structure the contours of the good life, the life that leads to flourishing. These commands are, to make, uh, are meant to bring us into a right relation to reality. Look, for example, at the Ten Commandments, which just are a summary of Scripture's moral law. The first four call us to love God, and the, sec- uh, the last six call us to love our neighbor. But when we work to detach ethics from flourishing, I think there are some confusions that arise, especially, for example, when we think of the fourth commandment, the commandment of the Sabbath. We might ask ourselves, is it immoral to neglect rest on the Sabbath? It seems like to ask the question, is it moral or not moral to rest? It seems as if that falls outside of our normal moral categories. We're not exactly sure what we're supposed to say. However, if we conceive ethics as flourishing, this question and a corresponding answer begins to take on definite contours. As a tree bears fruit in its proper seasons, as the tree of Psalm 1, so humans, in order to flourish, have to have a proper balance, a proper rhythm of work and rest. The Ten Commandments are meant to push us in the way of flourishing, and we neglect them to our own peril. To resist rest is to starve ourselves of a necessary component that we need to flourish. And this necessity directs us to an inherent pattern in all things, in all of creation. And that brings us to our second point, that of wisdom. Look with me at James 1, 5 through 8. James writes the following. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So James is showing us two important things here. One, that wisdom is necessary for our flourishing. And two, that wisdom and faith cannot be separated. But what what does he mean by this? What is he getting at? Well, to begin with, we have to get at what James himself means by wisdom. It's important to note that that James is a book is often called the wisdom literature of the New Testament as a kind of Proverbs of the New Testament. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised that one of the things that James does here is to ask God to lavish wisdom upon his people. 
And James will spend much of the rest of his book filling out the contours of this wisdom, especially as it relates to God's law and God's creation. In fact, one set of commentators write the following, quote, James's epistle is most intriguing for the way it brings us back to the Old Testament themes of wisdom, Torah, and living well in God's created order, end quote. That is, the, the basic notion of biblical wisdom is that of living well before God, with others, and inside of God's created order. And this is comprehensive. It's something that's going to affect every part and every aspect of humanity. Because this just way just is the properly human way of being human in the world. The way of being human that leads to human flourishing. And I think a reflection by, by Wendell Berry is, is particularly powerful in, in giving us an image of, of what's going on here. Uh, Barry spent a summer on a river bank in Kentucky, and he recorded his, his thoughts there, recorded what he observed. And Barry writes the following. He says, That summer I began to see, however dimly, that one of my ambitions, perhaps my governing ambition, was to belong fully to this place, to belong as the thrushes belong, and the herons and the muskrats belong, to be altogether at home here, that is still my ambition. I have made myself willing to be entirely governed by it. It is a spiritual ambition, like goodness. The wild creatures belong to this place by nature. But as a man, I can belong to it only by understanding and by virtue. End quote. That is to say, when, when Barry is looking around his riverbank, he sees a kind of natural fittingness between the environment of the riverbank and the many animals that populate it. They are naturally, quote, at home there. For them, it takes no effort. It's just what they do. They're naturally at home in the environment of the riverbank. But not so for him as a human. He realizes that for him, it's going to take work. For him to be at home, in some way, shape, or form, it's going to take virtue and understanding. Even more, Barry can reject the whole thing altogether. If he wanted to, he could cover the whole scene in pesticide till not another heron chirped or muskrat scurried. So then, as a human, we have to ask, what does it mean to be at home here in God's creation? Even more, what are we to make of Barry's ambition to be entirely governed by this need to be at home in the world? That's a very, very strong statement. And it raises an important question. And this question will also help us understand what James means by his deep, inseparable connection between faith and wisdom. Think about it. To believe that we're at home in the world is an act of trust. To believe that God has placed us here in the world with the means to actually flourish, that's an issue of trust. Consider, for example, a, a contrasting case. case. Uh, Elon Musk recently made headlines uh, with respect to his company SpaceX. 
Um, he was talking about his plans to develop settlements on Mars in the future. And the, the thing that drew particular attention was his assessment that, quote, many people will probably die. That is, it's very dangerous both to get to Mars, let alone once you're there to actually develop settlements on Mars. In one article writing about Musk's assessment, elaborated on what he had to say with the following, quote, the planet Mars is also an exceedingly lethal place to visit. Humans could be killed by radiation exposure, and the planet's surface is so low that atmospheric pressure that a person's blood would literally boil if they were exposed to the elements. That means settlers would permanently need to live in airtight habitats or clunky spacesuits to keep them alive. So we've got two very different pictures here. Contrast these two pictures. We have the riverbank of Barry, and we have the Mars of Musk. So Mars is actually a place that's lethal to our physical flourishing. Could we ever really be at home on Mars? Could we ever really belong on Mars? Could we ever get out of those airtight habitats or those clunky spacesuits? On Mars, could we ever just let our guard down and receive what Mars has for us? Could we ever flourish on Mars? Or, to put the situation a little differently, could we ever trust Mars? But saying that isn't quite right, because strictly speaking, we don't trust the riverbank. What we trust is the creator of the riverbank. And the same creator who made the riverbank also made Mars. But we trust that God has not created us to live on Mars. We trust that Mars is not our home. And trust is a key aspect of wisdom. It's more than believing that God exists. Trust involves letting our guard down and receiving the good gifts that God has for us here in the place where he has put us. It's believing that God actually does mean us to flourish. It's believing both that God loves us and that he knows what's best for us. Even more, it's believing that God will actually give us those things that are best for us. And this trust is integral to wisdom. The book of Proverbs on multiple occasions tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And commentators will point out that this concept of fear is, is perhaps best gotten at by loving reverence. That is, the first step in living well before God with others in creation is a loving reverence to God. And this loving reverence just is the first step in trusting that God created us here to be at home in the world. So to begin with wisdom is actually to begin with a deep faith in God's good and gracious character. Without faith, we cannot have wisdom. And this is why James is telling us that doubting God actually bars us from wisdom. Without faith, there is no wisdom because faith is trust 
And without that trust, we cannot receive the wisdom that God has for us. This is what James calls being double-minded. Think again about the example of, of rest. In a very real way, rest just is the paradigmatic act of trust. To, to rest is to recognize that God is God and you are not. To rest is to recognize that the whole world is not resting on your shoulders. To rest is to recognize that the whole world will not fall apart without you. But to resist rest is to forget that we are merely human. In fact, to constantly resist rest is in a way to say that the paradigmatic, the main, the foundational way of being human in the world is to earn for yourself rather than to receive from God. Yes, we are stewards and we are called to work hard. But we cannot forget that all that we've received is a gift. Yes, we steward carefully and diligently. But everything that we steward is always and only a gift from God. So then to regularly sacrifice sleep, fellowship, reflection, recreation, and worship is to forget that all that we have is a gift. And in a way, it's very similar to trying to make our home on Mars. Consider another contrast that James puts forward. He says the following in James 1, 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What James is showing us here is two basic dispositions to reality. And each of these positions lead us in one way or another. And what he's warning against is a disposition that leads to an anti-flourishing. And it's interesting that he casts this anti-flourishing in organic agricultural terms. He speaks of the grass that wilts, the flower that withers, and the beauty that fades. He's casting anti-flourishing as de-creation, as the destruction of creation. And if we understand the basic disposition of the human as that of trusting God and receiving from God, James here is warning against a disposition that refuses God and rejects his good gift to us. And to do that is to basically reject the basic human posture, the way we're meant to be human in the world. It is to reject our humanity embrace and embrace a kind of de-creation. Consider the, the words of theologian and uh, New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham. He, he says the following about this particular passage in James. He writes, Poverty, in a sense, exposes the human situation in need of God. It dispels the illusion that wealth so often encourages, the illusion of being self-sufficient and secure with no need of God. The poor are those whose material conditions enable them to see more clearly than most the human need to be wholly reliant upon God. It is in this sense that the biblical poor are understood 
as paradigmatic in their faith. The point here is not is bad. That's not what James is saying. But he is warning us that there's a particular kind of temptation that comes more easily with wealth. Wealth can tempt us to forget that everything we have is a gift. It can tempt us to forget that we are called to steward, that we are called to cultivate all that God has given us, but not to commandeer it. And financial resources can particularly be prized. So, the point here is not that wealth... Oh, sorry. Um, does it go... There we go. I think I might have messed it up. Oh, perfect. Thanks. Sorry. I can still chalk it up to, to being new this week. So next week I'll have it together. Hopefully you can hear better now too. Um, so what James is attacking here is not wealth itself, but the improper use of wealth. The problem is when wealth itself becomes our object of trust rather than God. Because what wisdom calls us to is to use everything we have, all of our resources, whatever they are, as a means of trusting God. So we have to ask ourselves, do the way that we use our resources, whatever they are, demonstrate a deep trust in God? For in this particular case, to trust more in our financial bank account rather than the goodness and graciousness of God is, again, like trying to make our home on Mars. Or, more specifically, it's like wearing a clunky, airtight spacesuit here on Earth, refusing that sweet floral refreshment of a spring breeze, the kind of breeze that, that I'm sure many of you experienced this morning on your way to church. But of course, things do not always go as planned. And I say this with trepidation because James calls us to trust God in his good and gracious purposes, even in the midst of deep pain. We are called to trust God in a fallen world. James warns us that we'll meet trials, but he also assures us that God can and will use these trials to complete us, to perfect us, to bring us to flourishing. But this is not an easy act of trust. When we look around, we see much hurt, much pain, much injustice in the world. So the question is, does this disqualify God as an act of trust? Can we really trust God that biblical ethics is the way of flourishing? Can we really trust God that we are at home in the world and he intends for us to flourish within us? Can we really trust that God can use even the most painful of circumstances as a way that he brings us to our full fruition? These are important questions. And this brings us to our third and final point, the gospel. It's important to note that when Proverbs speaks of the fear of the Lord, what's translated as Lord is actually the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. When we talk about Yahweh, we talk about the way that God has revealed himself to his covenant people, not only as their creator, but also as their redeemer and their savior. To speak of Yahweh is to speak, for example, of the God of the Exodus, the God who delivers his covenant people from Egyptian slavery. 
And James, in particular, has seen, God, seen firsthand God's greatest act of redemption. James has seen firsthand how far Yahweh, the covenant God, will go to redeem and rescue his covenant people. James has seen firsthand God the Son become human and live the perfectly wise life. James has seen firsthand God take upon himself the suffering, the pain, and the trials of the world. The Christian tradition has uh, typically referred to this as the humiliation of Christ. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism, one, one of our own foundational documents, says the following, and it outlines all the aspects so well. It reads, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a lowly condition, he, he did not live a privileged life, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So what we see in Christ is that God himself has experienced the miseries of this world. We find that God himself has personally experienced the effects of injustice, of betrayal, even the betrayal of his closest friends. He's experienced the effects of, of death. And he himself experienced the very judgment of God. The judgment that we deserve for rejecting God and his precious, gracious gifts. So when we speak of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, we speak of a God who does not stand back from the sufferings of the world. We speak of a God who in Christ has endured these sufferings personally. And even more, we speak of a God who has endured them for us. For these are the consequences of our actions alone, not Christ's perfectly ethical life of wisdom. But he, through his work, has removed any barrier, both to fully receive from God and, most importantly, be fully received by God. In Christ, we are shown without a doubt that God is good and gracious, that God is wholly trustworthy, and despite any insecurities, frustrations, guilt we might have, that we ourselves can be wholly received by God. And so when God calls us to trust in him, God calls us to faith in Christ. For in Christ, God himself has suffered the very things that can lead us to doubt that God is a good and gracious creator. In Christ, we find that God is both creator and redeemer. In, God, in Christ, we see that God is wholly good and wholly gracious. We find that God is Yahweh, the God who delivers his covenant people even at the greatest cost to himself. To trust in Christ is to warmly receive the good soil, the living water, and the everlasting light that makes us to flourish like the tree of Psalm 1. Think about a tree. A tree cannot help but accept the good gifts of God. It will receive the sunlight, the soil, and the air. Not so for humans. Humans are sort of a creational anomaly. A human is like a tree that chooses to wither in a well-watered grove. A human is like a sheep that chooses to starve in a plentiful pasture. 
A human is like a fish who chooses to suffocate because it insists upon breathing above the water. But to trust in Christ is to warmly receive all that God has for us, beginning with God himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have made us and created us, and we thank you that you have redeemed us and restored us. Help us to trust you in all things, knowing that in Christ you have shown without a doubt that your character is good and gracious. Apply these truths to our heart by your Spirit. In the name of Christ, amen.